If you'll take your Bibles and open to the book of 1 John, we'll take a break from Samuel for who knows how long. Um, the book of 1 John. First John chapter 3, and I'll read from verse 7. Please follow along with me. This is great news, so let's look closely. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray one more time and ask for help. Father, our prayer is the same every week, that you would speak to us by your word. We've come together again because we're hungry. We're hungry to hear from you. We're hungry for your word. So, Father, would you feed us tonight? I pray that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. We want you words. We want those words. Let them remain. Let them fill us and satisfy us and bear fruit in our life. We pray this. Amen. As a kid, I had the incredible experience, which I hope that some of you have had, to see a wrecking ball. Anyone seen a wrecking ball in action? Do you remember the wrecking balls? I don't, I don't know if they use them anymore, right? Like the, the, I can think of at least two separate times in my life where I had what is the unmistakable joy, at least for a little boy and for a big boy, right? To, to see an 8,000-pound ball of steel that is hanging from a chain at the top of a crane and swinging back and forth. And then there's some incredibly lucky guy, right? The driver. This is the guy who intentionally gets paid, right, to maneuver the crane in such a way that the ball swings back and forth to build momentum until it smashes into concrete structures. How cool is that, right? Like, isn't that, isn't that cool? I mean, I remember thinking, all right, that's what I want to be when I grow up, all right? Where do, where do I sign up? You don't really have to pay me that much, you know? Where, where, where do I sign up? And Hey, I, I mean, think about this. Can you imagine what kind of swagger that guy has when he walks into parties? You know, like, uh, wouldn't that be a fun way to start a conversation? I'd be starting it all the time. Hey, you know, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a pastor. I'm a teacher. You know, I'm an insurance adjuster. You know, I nudge customer support. What do you do? I smash buildings with a big ball, right? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be cool? You just kind of walk around with your, you know. I, I, think, I think that'd be cool. Now, I'm Imagine how awkward it, awkward it would be. I wonder if this has ever happened. Where like the wrecking ball crane guy, I don't know what he's called, demolition expert. 
Yeah, demolition expert. All right, imagine if he meets the architect, right? Don't you think that, don't you think that would be kind of, that, that'd, be, that'd be kind of awkward, right? You know, uh, especially if you met the architect of a building that he has destroyed. Yeah, they got kind of tired of your work. It was getting kind of boring, so they paid me to come, you know, dis- destroy it. Did you know that when Jesus came to earth, he brought a wrecking ball? That he came as a demolition expert? That's what it says here in 1 John, more or less, right? That 1 John is telling us that, that this is the whole purpose that he came. This is the purpose that he came. Look down at verse 8. We see our Christmas verse here. The reason the Son of God appeared. What's that referring to? That's, that's the Advent, right? That's, the, that's Christmas. That's why that is Christ's coming to earth. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, during Advent season, we have been exploring the, the manner and the reasons that Christ came to earth. And we've been talking about the hope and, and the love, and we'll continue to talk about peace and joy that, that are a part of the coming of Christ. But tonight, I want to explore one of my favorite reasons for Christmas, one, uh, one reason that is often, often forgotten, that Jesus came to destroy the work of Satan. Can I amen? Can we get an amen? Jesus came to destroy the work at, of Satan. So at, at your Christmas celebration this year, let's, let's not forget about Christ's demolition mission, right? Um, we're going to focus mo- most of our attention tonight on, on just this one part of, of verse 8, but we're, we'll, we'll do a little bit more. But in order to do that, we've got to understand the context of what's going on here uh, in this portion of First John. We're jumping into the middle of a very detailed and and then somewhat complex argument, and I don't want you to just take my word for it. I'm convinced that, you know, it's helpful if you learn some information, but it's way more powerful if you see it for yourself in the Bible, so that when you go off and you forget about tonight, you know, like tomorrow, you'll still have First John, like, 3, 8. And so, so I, want you, I want you to see it. I want you to see these things in the text. So I want you to try to follow the implications of, of John's argument and what he's saying. And so in order to help you do that, you have received a handout. It's on the back of your, uh, your lyrics. Um, if you didn't get one, uh, they'll, they'll be there in the back. I didn't do any blanks, right, because I don't have a way to, to tell you the answers. And, and that's just there for your reference. If, if, uh, if you want to follow along, I'll be generally following that. But uh, what I want to do tonight is try to walk through this, walk through this text together. And I've wor- organized my observations uh, into to several different points. And so the first thing that we need to see, the first thing we need to learn and remember tonight is don't be tricked into thinking that sin isn't a big deal. I really think that's the context of what John is, is talking about. That's the broader point that he's making. If we go all the way back to, to chapter 2, verse 28, you can find that there, right? Um, but, but we see it especially in verse 6. Look up in verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Okay, that's, that's kind of hard to understand, right? I mean, because we know that Christians still sin. So, so what's, what's John saying? No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. But then down in verse 7, he, he's instructing the churches. He says, don't be deceived. 
Okay? He's talking to Christians. Don't be tricked. Don't be, don't be duped. Now, why do you think he would say that? Well, it appears that there were some people in the church who were, who were saying, that their, their argument, the best I can tell, would go something like this, right? So, so this new gospel, now that Christ has come, this new gospel has forgiveness. We don't have to go to the priest anymore. We don't have to make sacrifices anymore, right? We're not, we're not quite as worried about God striking us dead. You know, it's, so, so things have changed. We have this, this new grace, it seems. So what's the big deal about sin? I mean, what's, what's the big deal? Because we have grace, so, you know, when we sin, uh, you know, if you, if, you, if you have faith in Christ, then, then you're okay, right? Have you ever heard that argument today, right? Cheap grace. Have you ever felt yourself pulled into that lie, that cheap sort of grace? Well, the lie is that since forgiveness is available, sin isn't that big of a deal, I don't think that these folks, these, these dissenters, these who were stirring things up were, I don't think they were encouraging people to sin. I think that they were just trying to downplay the importance of a holy life. They were trying to downplay it, to say that it's not that big of a deal. Now you, you may, even without knowing it, have some, maybe you've downplayed the importance of holiness in your life. Maybe your sin doesn't bother you that much. Some years ago, I read an account of the 1889 disaster that took the lives of 2,209 people in the small teal st- uh, steel town of uh, Jonestown, Tennessee. Jonestown, Johnstown, I don't know, Johnstown. It was a deadly disaster that was known as the Johnstown Flood. And it was that one of the things that's interesting about it is that it was the first major relief effort for the American, the American Red Cross. Perhaps you've heard about it. I read about it from David McCullough. And the short version of the story was that there was this dam that was built and it was owned and maintained by this extremely exclusive uh, South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, club, which basically owned all this property and was it was a popular uh, resort for the ultra, ultra wealthy, right? The, the tycoons of business, right? It had uh, Andrew Carnegie was one of its members and, and Henry, Henry Clay Fick. And, and just downstream from the dam, there were a number of small towns some were larger, right? Jonestown, Johnstown was, I think, 30,000, which was the biggest. But there were all these towns that were downstream that lived right on the river of the dam. Well, the club's history, though it has a lot of prominent members, has a very dark shadow about it. Well, they needed some money to, uh, to, to start some sort of building project on their property. And so uh, one of its members, who was a U.S. congressman and a civil engineer, decided that the steel pipes that supported the dam weren't needed. So he, he organized a relief effort to go pull out all the steel of the dam, and they were sold for scrap to pay for this. And this, of course, severely weakened the dam's integrity. Well, over the years, many people began to raise the alarm about the impending danger of, of this dam and that it was likely to fail. And there were, there were other problems with it. But, 
the club owners weren't concerned about this. They weren't concerned about the cries of the poor, uh, and, and they didn't do anything about it. Um, and since most of those who lived downstream from the dam had, had they'd always, the dam had always been there in their lifetime, they, you know, they had kind of, they'd gotten used to it. So nobody really thought it was too serious. Well, of course, that was until historic rainfall um, caused flooding and the dam suffered a catastrophic failure and released some 20 million tons of water downstream, which of course caused massive damage, killing, killing thousands. The eyewitness descriptions of the account are absolutely horrifying. Nearly all the survivors describe what they call a mountain of water that, that is, was later discovered that it was moving at 40 miles an hour. One person said it was like a terrible wave that picked up houses, trees, and even trains on its way down the valley. One person said by the time that it reached Johnstown, the flood didn't even look like water anymore. People who saw it coming said that it looked like a moving, boiling, black mountain of junk. 35 feet high at its crest, it was later found that it had the force of Niagara Falls. Right? Just picture this wave coming down. There's some 400 children that perished in, in this accident. But for us, this, this tidal wave, this boiling black mountain of junk should remind us of the incredibly destructive force of sin. You see, just like the people in Johnstown, all of us have spent most of our lives at the, with the familiar danger of sin all around us, right? In, in the shadow of, of the dam. We, we live in the shadow of sin. We play on its banks. We see so much sin. We get used to it. We commit so much sin. That we just kind of get used to it. Sure, you know, we, we express outrage over the big stuff, but there's lots that we've grown used to. We have so much sin that is in us and so much sin that is around us that, that we just kind of get used to it. And we're lulled to sleep by its familiarity. Kind of like a resort that's at the foot of an active volcano. Right? It's pretty and you kind of get used to it. Well, I think that part of John's point is that this is what he's warning them about. He's saying, don't be tricked into thinking that sin isn't a big deal. Don't be tricked. Don't be lulled to sleep by its constant presence. That pride that you struggle with, that addiction, that bad habit, right? Those things that are part of your life, don't be lulled to sleep by thinking they're not, they're not dangerous, just because sin is constantly present, it's still deadly. And the dam hasn't burst yet, but it will. The consequences for sin will be horrifying. And John's point here in chapter 3 isn't mainly for lost people. It's for Christians. He's saying don't be lulled to sleep into thinking that, that sin can have a peaceful presence in your life. It can't. All of us have, to some degree, sins in our life that we've just kind of made peace with. Sins we've gotten used to and aren't really bothered by. But John's saying, hey, wake up. Don't be deceived. Because he goes on to say here in verse 7, what he's talking about, he's saying that our behavior exposes our identity. 
Our behavior exposes our spiritual identity. The righteous practice righteousness. And then evil, evil people practice evil. You cannot be righteous and keep practicing evil. That's just absolutely not an option for a believer. The picture that John's giving us is you can look at a person's action and tell whether or not they're a believer. If it's righteous, they're a believer. If it's wicked, they're not. Now, we know it's not that simple on the outside of things. But John's point is that he is simplifying it for us. Righteous people live righteous lives. A good way to describe this is that in order to be right... In order to be right with God, in order to be righteous, you must act right. In order to be right, you must act right. But John doesn't just leave it there. He, he doesn't just tell them that, that they are wrong, but he, and he doesn't just leave them there, but he actually sets out to, to help them, to, to correct their thinking and to correct their behavior. And here's how his, his argument works. It brings us to the second point here on, on your sheet. Children have the nature of their fathers. That's the point that he is making. There's really two parts to this. The first part is that those who are born of God have God's nature, right? They're little gods. They're God-like. They're Christ-like. Look down at verse 7. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, right? You see the logic? If you practice righteousness, you are righteous as Christ is righteous, Okay, so, so those who are sons of God, those who are truly saved, practice righteousness. What that means is that their lives or your lives are characterized by constant, ongoing obedience to God's law. That because you have a new heart, a new inner nature that is now consistent with God's nature, that's going to reveal itself in the way you behave. The new nature exposes itself in behavior. In other words, righteous people consistently and mostly do righteous things. Think about that. Righteous people mostly do righteous things. That is, God's people have God's nature. Right? If we're, if we're God's people, we now have his nature in us. Well, the dark side of that, the flip side of that is, is that those who are born of the devil have his nature. Satan's people have Satan's nature. Look down at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. If you look down to verse 10, it's even more clear. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Ooh, how often have we failed to love our brothers? So what, what's he saying? What's, what's he saying? He's saying that just as the righteous one acts like his father, God, the sinner acts like his father, Satan. And we know that all of us are born into sin, and so we are born with Satan as, as our father. We could, we could talk about that more, but so that's sufficient for us tonight. And it's interesting for us as we can remember that, that you can see the nature of a father in the nature of his children. Here, here's what I mean. Now, there are there's some ways that my children are like me, right? Um, the other day, Karis said, Daddy, I love popcorn and fresca, right? Now, if you know me, 
you know that I love popcorn and Fresca. If you haven't had Fresca, come over to my house. I'll introduce you. I've gotten lots of folks hooked on it. But popcorn and, and Fresca. And, and Haley, when Kara said this, you know, we kind of looked at each other and we, I just kind of smiled and was like, that's my girl, right? I wanted to call my dad who taught me to like popcorn and fresca. Um, and, 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 you know, so in a sense, Karis reflects her father's nature, right? She's my child, and she sees me eating popcorn and fresca, and, you know, and I, I sell her on it. But I don't really think that's what John means here. I think it's, I think it's something that's much more dramatic, right? Yes, Karis likes popcorn and fresca just like I do. But she also walks on two legs like I do. She also breathes in oxygen and out carbon dioxide just like I do. She's like me in the fact that we're both human, right? We're both, we're both human. She is a human daughter, right? She's much more like me than, say, um, the fish that lives in a bowl, this poor unfortunate creature that lives in a bowl on our, our counter, right? Yeah, sure, the fish has eyes, right? I got eyes. And the fish, fish eats food, like, you know, like I do. But the fish is of an entirely different nature, right? It's got fish nature, whatever that is, right? It's got fish nature, and it's, it's clearly different than... than you know, human nature. So you can look at the actions of my daughter and tell immediately that she is the daughter of a man and not the daughter of a fish, right? John, that's what John is saying here. He's saying that you can look at a person's behavior and tell what sort of nature they have, right? What sort of nature they are of. So here's, here's what this means for us. When we obey God, we're saying, God is my father. I am of God's nature, well, what's that mean when we sin? When we sin, we are saying that we are of Satan's nature. Now, both can't be true, but let's think about what that, what that means for us. We'll come back to what, what sin does in the life of a believer in a moment. But for now, the important thing to recognize is that our behavior, not just our profession, our behavior reveals our nature and the nature of our Father. Okay, so when we obey, we're representing Christ. And when we sin, we're representing Satan. So this brings us to another important point. So from this, we can now say, number three, or C, or whatever you've got there, is that when we sin, we advance the devil's agenda. That should give you a little chill. When we sin, we advance the devil's agenda. Look down at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Okay, so, so John uses this phrase, the practice of sinning, which, which describes how a person is involved in sin in an, in an ongoing way. In other words, they do what the devil does, right? They, they act like him. So whenever someone sins, they're acting like Satan acts. Just think about that. They're acting like Satan acts. Satan sins. That's what he does, right? That's his thing. That's what, that's what he does. He's been doing it from the beginning, and he's still doing it. Nothing has changed. Satan sins. He's been doing it from the beginning. He is still doing it. So every time that you and I sin, we're acting like Satan, right? You, you see that, right? But it gets worse. Not only do we act like Satan whenever we sin, but we're actually carrying out his work. We're actually advancing his agenda. We are serving as his agents. Satan's agenda is the opposition to God and his kingdom. 
That's called sin. He opposes everything about God and everything about God's rule and everything about his kingdom. So every sin that is committed, from the big stuff to the little squabbles in your marriage, to the feeling, the thought of pride that you have when another person walks by, to the stray glance, to the greedy heart, to the complaint, to the discontentment, to the lack of trust in God, every one of those sins on some level is a successful continuance of Satan's policy of sin. Isn't that terrifying? Right? It's, you know, we have several examples of this in the scriptures. If you, uh, if you remember Matthew chapter 16, do you remember how when Jesus began to tell the disciples that, that he was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to suffer at the hands of the high priests and, and, and the elders and that he was going to be killed and he was going to be beaten and then he would be raised to life. Do you remember what Peter said? Right? Good old Peter. Peter uh, pulled Jesus aside and said, uh, excuse me, but far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Right? Do you remember how Jesus responded? Get behind me, Satan. Now, was Jesus saying that, that Peter had become an incarnate Satan? I don't think so. I, I, I think that what Jesus was saying was that Satan was working to advance his agenda through Peter's sin. Sin is serious. All of our sin, the big stuff and the small stuff, is in opposition to the kingdom of God. It is a cooperation of Satan's effort to undo God, his kingdom, and his gospel. It is an affront on the holiness of God. And every time that we carry out sin, we are willingly supporting the demonic work of Satan. We see the same thing with Judas. Right? Satan used Judas to carry out his demonic desires to kill God. In John chapter 13, it says that Satan, and I'm quoting, put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray, to betray him, to betray Christ. Satan put it into his heart. So, so when we're tempted, Satan is putting demonic desires into our heart. And when we fall into temptation and when we give in, what we are doing is we're cooperating. We are willingly carrying out the work and the desires of Satan. Church, sin is not a game. But there's good news. <laughs> the good news is that Christ came to destroy the work of the devil. Verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, when Christ appeared, when Christ came onto the scene in Bethlehem, he entered into Satan's kingdom, the prince of the power of the air, the one who rules over this present darkness. He entered into Satan's kingdom and he came on a mission to demolish the kingdom of Satan. To put an end to all of his dark works. Jesus came to destroy depression, despair, disease, and death. He came to destroy arson, adultery, aggression, and assault. He came to destroy cancer, covetousness, and comas. 
He came to destroy poverty and persecution. He came to destroy manipulation and aggravation and devastation. He came to heal the sick, to comfort the grieving, to release the captives. He came to seek the lost. He came to save the lost. He came and found the lost. Jesus came to redeem sinners, to chase down prodigals, to track down the wandering. He came to break the bondage of sin, to defang the serpent, and to conquer the sting of death. Christ came to bear our burdens, to become our curse, and to take our punishment. Dear friends, Jesus Christ came into world into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And here's the thing: Jesus doesn't fail. Right? He has issued the fatal blow. Christ did not fail on his demolition mission. He's defeated, destroyed the work of the devil. So, but what is this work of the devil? Well, as I've said, Satan's work is to oppose God. To oppose God in every way. To, he, he, he's working to undo all of God's good work as much as he possibly can. The other day I came, into our, uh, I came home from work as a Monday or Tuesday and, and Haley and Karis and Addie were decorating the Christmas tree. Watching a four-year-old and a one-year-old help my wife decorate the Christmas tree is very amusing. I'm not, I don't really like decorating things. Um, so I was very happy to sit back and watch. And I noticed a couple things. First of all, I noticed that the light started about halfway up, right? So that Addie couldn't yank them down. The second thing I noticed is that the section that Karis had been decorating had every single ornament that we owned all in like a three square, you know, three square foot radius of, you know, the chair. And the other thing I noticed is that there were these other massively blank sections of the tree. And Haley explained to me that she was walking around, you know, decorating, and Addie, our youngest, was walking behind her and undecorating, right? You know, taking them off. And so, you know, I just could see this round, round and round, round and round they go. And that, that picture of undecorating, right? That, that's a picture of what Satan is, what Satan is trying to do. He, he goes behind the good work of God and he seeks to undo it, right? He, He's not going to succeed eventually, right? But in the short term, he's working to undecorate as much as as possible. And that's what we see in the garden, right? Satan was coming into the good creation behind God and seeking to undo the goodness of God's work. And he has been largely successful, hasn't he? For a little while. His primary strategy... Our foe's primary strategy is temptation. To tempt people and to convince us to turn away in decision after decision from obeying and following God's will. And every time we sin, every time we give in, we are cooperating with Satan in his demonic work. Satan has come to demolish the kingdom of God. So Christ has come to demolish the dark kingdom of Satan. Well, how, how did Christ do it? How, how did Christ do this? How did he destroy the works of the devil? Well, I think there's several ways. One way that's interesting is, you know, unlike Adam and Eve who were in a garden, they were unable to resist temptation. And then we see Christ in the wilderness, a cursed garden, who was able to 
defeat temptation. He was able to see past Satan's lies and able to hold up. We also see in the miracles, the way that Jesus came to earth and he was undoing the work of Satan, right? Aren't these awesome pictures how he was making the blind to see and he was making the lame walk. He was uh, making the mute speak and the dead come back to life. But those are just foretastes. Because we see really the way, that, the way that Jesus came to undo the work of Satan to destroy it was, you can see it back in verse 5. Jesus appeared to take away sins. He appeared to take away sins. Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. The same word is used here. Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And he appeared to take away sins. Church, on the cross and on the tomb, Christ landed the decisive blow against the kingdom of darkness. He made it possible. He made a way to buy back those who are enslaved to Satan, who are doomed to death. And though Christ had no sin, he came to take away our sin. If there is no sin, there is no death. And there is no curse. And there is no cancer. There are no comas. There are no sick 19-year-olds. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus came to demolish the curse and redeem from Satan all those who place their faith in him. And though we still live in a broken world where marriages fall apart, where forest fires ravage homes, where 19-year-olds lay in comas, he has already landed the final and fatal blow. And he's coming back to get us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. We're waiting for him to come back and get us. And when you consider this biblical narrative, right? When you, when you think about the story of the world like this, and when you see sin from this perspective, doesn't it make sin seem insane? Right? That's what sin is, especially for the believer. Sin is insanity. Why would we as believers, those who have been reborn, those who have new hearts, hearts that are now beating like God, why would we revert to sin? Our hearts that, are, that were Adam-like have been taken out and we've been given new Christ-like hearts. So why would we still sin? Why would we willingly continue, now that we know what Satan is doing, right? Why would we willingly continue his wicked agenda on the earth when we have suffered firsthand and have seen so much of the misery caused by sin? Well, that's really the main point of this portion of, of John's letter. And he's explaining to the churches, the reason he's telling them all this is so that they would not sin. That's his purpose. I'm telling you all these things so that you would not sin, he says earlier in the book. Doesn't this do that for you? Doesn't this, I mean, do you feel the power that's welling up in your heart now? That, that doesn't this make you not want to sin? I hope that you want to sin even less than you did 45 minutes ago, right? Don't you see that power? Don't you see how this is actually undoing the power of sin? That as we see sin as it really is, when we're not being deceived, when the bait is off the hook, when we're seeing it as it really is, we don't want to sin anymore. 
That's, that's the eyes that God has given us. And you see, this argument, this, this understanding that we can now have, it arms you. It, it actually gives you a weapon against temptation. If Christ came to redeem us and to destroy the works of the devil, then why would we actively take part in that which he came to destroy? Or perhaps more urgently, why in the world would we keep sinning? Or I guess the question now is, since we know we still struggle with sin, what do we do about it? What do we do when we sin? Well, at the time that I have left, I'd like to try to answer that question. What do we do when we sin? What about believers who still sin? Well, I hope that one of the effects that this text has had on you was to, in a sense, scare you. To, to see, to warn you of the danger of sin. And I pray, I've been praying that God's Spirit would convict us of sins that are lying dormant in our heart, that are under the radar, that we need to deal with. But the sad reality is that for all of us, and, and we won't get into this in detail, read Romans 5-8, through 8, is that believers still do sin, right? We, we still do sin. Earlier in the book, John acknowledges this sad reality. Flip over to chapter 2 verse 1. Once you see this. Alright, so this is, this is what I was referring to before. John saying, my little children, I'm writing these things to you. Why? So that you may not sin. So, you want to fight sin? Spend some time in First John. Okay? He's writing these things to us so that we would not sin. But then, what's he say next? But, if you do sin, if anyone does sin, know this. We have an advocate, right? So he's, he's equipping them to how, on how to deal with sin. John's saying, I'm giving you weapons. I'm arming you with the truth so that you don't sin. But if you do, or <laughs> when you do, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to do. Flip back to chapter 3, verse, verse 7, right? Where we originally were. We've already said that you can look at a person's behavior and tell who their father is, right? You can, you, can, you can tell those who practice righteousness are God's children, and those who practice sin are Satan's children. Now, the key phrase to notice here is the practice. Do you see that phrase? The, the practice of sinning or the practice of righteousness. So it's really important for us to understand it. The picture is that whoever practices righteousness, that's what it says, those are the righteous display of deeds, right? The righteous, the righteous display the deeds of righteousness in a regular ongoing way. That was a mouthful. That means that the, those who are righteous display the deeds of God Obedience in a regular, habitual, ongoing way. And those who make a practice of sinning are of the devil, the text says, which refers to those who participate in sin in an ongoing way. Are there any sins that you're participating in in an ongoing way? Those are terribly dangerous. Terribly dangerous. What's the distinction here? What's the distinction between these two, these two groups of people? Well, it's not that the righteous don't ever sin. It's that the righteous don't continue to sin. You see that? It's not that the righteous don't sin. It's that the righteous don't continue to sin. The text says they don't make a practice of sinning. So, so here's how this works. God's children, when we see patterns of sin in our life, we will disrupt the pattern. 
Write the word disrupt down, right? Repentance is a disruption of sin. God's children will disrupt the patterns of sin in their life with repentance. That is the difference in the righteous and the children of Satan. Christians disrupt sin through repentance. You see, as long as we're still in the body, right? As long as we're still in these bodies, we will still struggle with sin. The flesh still dwells in us. So what do we do? We disrupt sin through repentance. We disrupt sin with repentance. What that means is don't let yourself get into any practice of sin. Don't repeat it again, right? Don't keep it going. Don't let the practice of sinning become established in your life. You see, the mark of a Christian, we talked about this back in James, right? The mark of a Christian is that Christians aren't people who are sinless, but Christians are people who repent. Christians are repenting sinners. We're repenting sinners. Now, I want to try to make this as absolutely practical as I can. And so I've, I've jotted down some steps for you in the back. You don't need to look at them now, uh, but you can think about this. Uh, you know, we see this cycle of sin and repentance in the Old Testament. Um, this is uh, the cycle of sin and repentance in the New Testament, this, at least the way that, that I, uh, I formulate it. So let, let, let's, let's put it like this. I'll try to give you um, an example from my own life, and let's try to make this as practical as we can. So, so the other day, I, uh, I came home from work. I was, I was, I was late. And uh, I came in, and I was helping Haley with the girls, and we were doing some things, and she was making dinner. And I needed to do something where I think I was taking the trash out, or I had to do something downstairs in the basement. So, so there's joyful, happy uh, chaos upstairs, and I'm exhausted. And I go downstairs, and I find that I sat down in a chair away from my family and tinkered on my phone for a couple minutes. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, except for I know that the reason I was doing that was because I was being selfish. Okay, now, I just stood in the pulpit a few days ago and pleaded with you to consider how to love others in sacrificial ways. And I still struggle with it, right? I still, I still struggle with it. I still sin. But here's the thing. I have a new heart, and the Spirit of God dwells in me. And so the Spirit pinged my heart. There was, there was an alarm that went off. I, I began to realize, okay, something's not right. This is not how it's supposed to be. That is the work of God. That's the work of the Spirit. The Nathan, you're being selfish. And so now I have to take action. So now I have realized my guilt. I realize, oh, Nathan, you're, you're a sinner. Right? And so Satan's whispering, my, whispering in my ears all the ways that I have, all the ways that I've failed. And that can lead into a spiral of despair. And, and, right, and I can end in, in a very dark place. But the, what, what a Christian does is when we see guilt, we realize that that means we have a need. We have a need. I got it. What do I do with this guilt? How do, I, how do I get rid of it? Right? How can I be made right with God? Well, that drives me where? To the cross. The cross is where Christians have had their guilt addressed. I, I run to the cross because I need to have my guilt removed. And you know what happens? That when I consider the cross, I see two things. First of all, I see that God takes my sin very seriously. It's incredibly severe. My selfish act on Monday night was so severe that Jesus hung naked on a cross and died for me. That's how serious tinkering on my phone because I'm selfish is. Right? 
It's serious. And so when I look at the cross, I remember this isn't, this isn't a game, right? This isn't trivial. This is, this is real. Selfishness is a, is a real problem. And so I'm repulsed by my sin. And what that does is that actually in the future prevents me from doing it. Because when I, when I see what my sin has done to Christ, and when I see the cost, I don't want to sin anymore. But when I look at the cross, I see something else. Yes, I see how disgusting my sin is. But I see how great the love of the Savior is. When you look at Calvary, you don't just see how much God hates sin. You don't just see how serious the law is. But you see that Christ loves sinners. And so what happens is the cross works to make me repulsed from sin and compelled towards Christ. Right? It's like a magnet. It's, it's pulling me towards him, away from Christ. I'm compelled to Christ when I see God's love for sinners. And so I repent. I acknowledge God. I agree with him about how serious my sin is. And then I get my tail up and I go and I love in my family. That's repentance. And I can do it boldly and I can talk about it and I can tell other people about it because it's been dealt with. Christ has paid for my sin and I have less of a desire to do that than I did three days ago by God's grace. You see, here's the thing. Repentance is growth. Repentance is growth. Every time you go through that cycle... As you see your sin, you see how serious it is and the guilt that it causes. And then you consider Christ and you see how bad the sin is, but you see how great his love is and that the sacrifice is available and that he'll take you back. You're freed from sin. That's the picture of the gospel. That's the picture of a life of repentance. John's whole point in writing this is to make sure that we don't get duped into thinking that sin isn't a big deal. That we should realize that when we sin, we are cooperating with and carrying out Satan's destructive work on his behalf. But Christ came to destroy the work of the devil. And even though we still sin, even though we still fall back into the ways of our old life of darkness, our hope is that Christ came to destroy the work of the devil. He gave us a new life. He's planted a new heart in us. He's given us his spirit. So now we repent and we celebrate because he's coming to get us. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work that you've done to defeat and destroy the work of the devil. I pray, Father, that we would not cooperate with our enemy in any way, but that we would cooperate with Christ to carry out the Great Commission and to display to the world the love that you have shown us. Make us a people who hate sin, but make us a people who don't despair, but love grace. I ask for this power. I ask for this hope in the name of Christ to purchase these precious gifts for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may stand and go in peace, church.